Happy Sabbath, everyone. Very beautiful, special music. God loves music, and music is also an important part of worshiping God. And I know that he enjoyed that. I know we did as well. <clears throat> Welcome to all of our guests. We have 276, is what I heard uh, in the announcements. So that's, a, I guess, a record, and uh, it's wonderful to see many guests here. I know we're all very excited about the Feast of Tabernacles coming up, and of course, <clears throat> we enjoyed uh, celebrating the Feast of Trumpets uh, just a couple days ago, and we know that we are <clears throat> moving forward in God's plan during the fall holy days. We are very excited, of course, about the Feast of Tabernacles. We understand what it pictures. That's a very special privilege, a very special understanding that God has given to his church that we have in the world of course, looks at these holy days as mysteries or as only for the Jews, but we know what the holy days mean and what a blessing that is. We know that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennial rule of Jesus Christ as King of Kings on this earth, the establishment of the real kingdom of God on this earth, which will begin with 1,000 years of Christ reigning as King of Kings, King David reigning under him, the apostles under them, and other notables, of course, like Moses and Job and Abraham and others. And if we do our job, we'll be there as well, ruling underneath of, of them for 1,000 years, and then into the rest of eternity. We look forward to that time when a real government will be established on the earth. We look forward to that time when perfect governance will be practiced. As faithful Christians, we hopefully pray every day as Jesus Christ admonished us in Matthew 6:10, Thy kingdom come. And as we see the violence and the plagues and the pestilence and the horrific, terrible things that are beginning to just saturate the news, beheadings in the Middle East, beheadings in America now, uh, various diseases, complete breakdown of of, well, not complete yet, but heading towards a complete breakdown. You know, as a digression, when it talks about that it will be as it was in the days of Noah, <clears throat> the days of Noah were very, very scary times. And so we pray thy kingdom come, and we will, brethren, be praying that with more fervor as the years go by, because we will see that without Christ's return, no flesh would be saved alive, we would not survive Humanity would spiral into destruction, into oblivion. <clears throat> Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20, a scripture that should be familiar to us, Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> this is when the promise will be fulfilled that we find recorded throughout scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, but specifically here in Revelation 20 verse 6. <clears throat> this is when the promise will be fulfilled. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's what we strive for. Over such, the second death has no power. <clears throat> those who awake to righteousness, those who are transformed, who are turned into spirit beings at Christ's return, who enter into the very family of God as immortal beings, part of the God family, we will never need to be afraid of disease or sickness or death. And the second death will have no power over us if we make it. <clears throat> but we, your Bible says they, but I like to be optimistic. I like to be hopeful. Hopefully this is we, this is us, shall, shall be priests of God and of Christ. 
and shall reign with him 1,000 years. Hopefully this will be us. This has been prophesied, as I mentioned, for thousands of years. This is not a New Testament notion. The prophets of old, David, the patriarchs, some of them understood more than others that there would be an establishment of God's government, God's kingdom, that Christ would return, that he would come. In the Old Testament, of course, they, they looked forward to his coming and that the government of God would be established on this earth. David talked about this. We'll notice what David said uh, a little bit about this later. <clears throat> this is also called the time of restoration. Let's turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. A time of immense blessings, brethren. A time of joy, of prosperity. A time of restoration. Let's turn to Acts chapter 3. <clears throat> this is what we strive for. This is the good news of the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not just a notion in our heart. It's not the Catholic Church on this earth. It's a real government that Christ will reign over and we again hopefully will be there ruling under him Acts chapter 3 let's begin in verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says I'm sorry I'm in Romans probably very helpful as well but let's get to the right chapter of the Bible Acts 3 verse 19 repent therefore and be converted so that's what we're doing hopefully we are Repentant, We are striving to overcome that your sins may be blotted out. That's the life we try to live, that we overcome our sins. But for what purpose, brethren? Now, we, we should want to serve God, love God, please God. And that's part of why we do this. It's a big part. <clears throat> but for what purpose? Just so we can know Jesus and then die and be extinguished and there's nothing more? No, repent, therefore, and be converted <clears throat> that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began <clears throat> for thousands of years, brethren. Those who have gone before us, the prophets of old, those with the Holy Spirit that have come before us. Some have understood less detail than we understand. We're very blessed to live at this time of the end when so much has been restored. We thank God for that. We thank God for using Mr. Armstrong to restore so much. We thank God for the loyalty of Dr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, and others who have been so loyal. I think often about Mr. Bruce Tyler on the other side of the world remaining loyal. We're so privileged to live in a time and be in God's church where we understand what this verse means. But as we also understand, brethren, <clears throat> before the first resurrection, before the restoration of all things spoken of by all his holy prophets since the world began, we understand that because humanity has rejected God, there will be increasing problems. There will be increasing weather calamities, famine around the world, diseases. We, we know what is coming. We heard about that on the Feast of Trumpets. 
It's not pleasant to think about, but it's coming. It will come. But we look beyond that. And the Feast of Tabernacles pictures a time beyond that, a time of prosperity, a time of restoration. But before that, we have to get through what Jesus Christ referred to in Matthew 24, 21, as the Great Tribulation, a time more terrible than any other that has ever been known. I was very, very blessed. It's odd to think about how I ended up at Ambassador College, but I did end up there and enjoyed it, was there four years, and got to know Dr. Lynn Torrance. I know Dr. Meredith and a few of you know who he was. A really interesting man. I didn't get to know him very well, but Dr. Torrance fought in World War II. Dr. Torrance, before he was a doctor, was engaged in the Battle of Bataan. Have any of you read about the Battle of Bataan? I would think about what he experienced, and I would think about how he and about 80,000 Filipino and American soldiers, they ran out of ammunition, they ran out of food, fighting the Japanese, and so they were forced to surrender. They fought till they were out of food and ammunition. They were already at the point of, you know, becoming malnourished. Many of them were beginning to starve. And then they began the 80-mile march that became known as the Death March, the Bataan Death March. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I mention that? Those are the times we're heading toward. And I would... Think about what Dr. Torrance experienced, how he and 80,000, roughly, the historians differ on the exact number. Some say 60,000, some say 80. But how he and 60 to 80,000 Filipino and American soldiers, after that excruciating and tiring battle, they were forcibly marched 80 miles. They were not fed the first three days. Some of you have had the pleasure to go to adventure camp. Some of you run or jog or hike. After fighting for three months, out of food and water, then marched for three days with no food and water, bayoneted, humiliated, shot, taunted, 10,000 died on the march alone. After they arrived at the prisoner camp, Between 30 and 50 more died per day because of disease, beatings, and worse. Jesus Christ says that what's coming will make that pale by comparison. So when we preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of Christ's return, we look beyond what we know America, the Western world, is going to suffer before that time of restoration. That's why we preach so powerfully, brethren, that people need to repent, that people need to accept the truth that God is God, turn from their evil ways, because we don't want to see the sword fall upon the land. But we know that there's hope beyond that, don't we? Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. 
We know that Jacob will be saved out of it. Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. When it looks like Jacob will be extinguished, when it looks like America, Britain, her allies will be no more, God will not forget his people, his rebellious people who have been corrected, but he will not forget them. Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. This is the same time Jesus Christ, of course, was referencing in Matthew. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Verse 8, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck. Those who have enslaved modern Israel, that yoke will be broken. I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. But instead, Jacob shall learn to serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Verse 10. Therefore, do not fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord. Although you are entering into perilous times, God says, he will save Jacob from afar. He will save Jacob's seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and then... We see a millennial reference, brethren, what the Feast of Tabernacles portrays. Jacob shall be returned out of their captivity. No more forced marches. No more starvation. No more abuse. They will learn that God is God. They will have rest and quiet. And no one shall make him afraid. Brethren, the Feast of Tabernacles is not a vacation. The Feast of Tabernacles portends, portrays, foreshadows a magnificent promise. A magnificent promise without which, brethren, humanity would cease. The Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll enjoy. Many of us will be leaving eight, nine days from now, some even before not a vacation. It is a celebration. It's a wonderful celebration. We are to enjoy it. We're told to enjoy the, you know, the fatted calf, have the, the good steak. We're, we're told to enjoy it, to stay in nice places as much as we can afford the fellowship. But as we understand, brethren, it's not a vacation. It is a foreshadowing of the greatest promise, possibly beyond other than Christ's you know, coming and his death for us, but that's it's all part of God's plan. But the great one of the greatest promises that mankind can ever know. That Christ, the Creator, will live and reign for a thousand years on this earth, that the Holy Spirit will be made available, that humanity will know peace and prosperity. I mentioned that music is very important to God. I'm sure he enjoyed the special music that we appreciated just a few minutes ago. Let's turn to Psalm 122. <clears throat> Tradition and historians differ on whether or not the Psalms of Ascent were sung for the 15 days prior to the feast or if they were sung on the 15 uh, steps leading up to the temple. Personally, I, my opinion is they were, it was probably both. <clears throat> Psalm 122. A Psalm of Ascent looking toward the millennium, 
A song full of promise, promises of prosperity, promises of blessings. A psalm that points us to the Feast of Tabernacles and to the Millennium, Christ's rule on this earth. Psalm 122 is the third psalm of ascent. And in 2014, if you were reading or singing or meditating on the psalms of ascent leading up to the Feast of Tabernacles, the way the calendar falls this year, this is the psalm you would have read or sung today. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built. This is a psalm of promise. It's a prophetic psalm looking forward to the future when Jerusalem will be built again as a city that is compact together where the tribes go up. So much in the psalm, brethren, will Study this psalm briefly during the sermon today. The tribes of the Lord. To the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. As Mr. Armstrong said many times, it's all about government. And it is. Loving government. Loving governance. Government is just the noun, that's the structure. Governance is the verb, that's the way that the government is executed. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. We live in a time now where peace and prosperity are fleeting, don't we, brethren? I will now say, verse 8, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The title of the sermon today, brethren, is Godly Governance and Millennial Prosperity. Godly Governance and Millennial Prosperity. I know you look forward to sitting on one of those thrones, as it states in verse 5. Being given a throne within the house of David or the household of David. Won't that be awesome to be there? I I know I don't feel worthy. I, I, I doubt any of you feel worthy. To sit on a throne under David, under the apostles, far under Christ, you know, probably my throne would be way, way down there. But to have a throne in the house of David, And to be part of that government. And our function will be to teach God's way. And to bring blessings and prosperity on the earth. And what we've learned during our human existence at the Feast of Tabernacles, all those years before, we'll put it into practice. That's why we pay attention to the sermons at the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's why we pay attention to all the sermons. And study our Bible Because we want to grow in understanding and how to apply God's law. Today I'd like to discuss four blessings, four promises of prosperity. There are others you could pull out of this psalm, but I've selected four that I'd like to discuss. First, prosperity on the tribes of Israel. Prosperity on the tribes of Israel. These are lessons that I extracted from Psalm 122 which again would be the psalm that we would sing today. 
if we were following that tradition. Number two, prosperity flowing from righteous government. No more abusive dictatorships, no more abusive communist systems, no more corrupt democracies, but prosperity flowing from righteous government. Third, prosperity upon all the nations that love Jerusalem. What does that mean? I'll explain more later, but in the psalm when it mentions that those who love Jerusalem, that means those who acknowledge that God is God. Those who acknowledge that the God of Israel is God. God is not a respecter of persons. The tribes of Israel will be blessed if they go up, acknowledge that God is God. The whole world, all the nations will be be blessed if they go up, acknowledge that God is God. And fourth, prosperity that flows outward from God's law in a personal way. Prosperity that flows out from God's law in a personal way. Point number one, prosperity on the tribes of Israel who go up to Jerusalem from year to year to keep the feast. We find that reference in Psalm 122, verse 4, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Let's turn to Ezekiel 48, brethren. Ezekiel 48, we know Ezekiel and elsewhere indicate that after the Great Tribulation, Israel will be reclaimed from their captivity. Israel will be led from where they were in bondage. They will be settled in their land again. We will hopefully be there to be part of bringing them out with a mighty hand, but a loving hand. They will have been through trauma. The Bataan Death March, as horrible as it was, was a blip compared to what will happen in the years years to come. Ezekiel 48, verse 30. This whole chapter is very interesting. It talks about the division of the land in the millennium. Ezekiel 48, verse 30. The first part of the chapter talks about the tribes resettled. And then here we have a description of the the gates and the city, verse 30. These are the exits of the city. So in the promised land, in the land of Israel, we will have the tribe settled in the middle of the center will be Jerusalem. And there will be the gates around the city on the north uh, side, measuring 4,500 cubits. Uh, The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel, verse 31. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one gate for Levi. In the prior scriptures, prior verses, we see where those tribes are settled. Verse 32, on the east side, 4,500 cubits. Three gates, one gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, one gate for Dan. On the south side, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, one gate for Zebulun. On the west, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, one gate for Naphtali. This is not filler. 
God will do this. And verse 35, so inspiring, the conclusion of Ezekiel, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there, Yahweh Shema. The only place in the Hebrew where that phrase is found. And what it means is the Lord is present therein. The Lord is present therein. He will be there. We will have an intimate relationship with our Lord Christ. And those who are human during the millennium, who come up to Jerusalem, he will be there. The Lord is found therein. He is present. And at that time, he will make a new covenant with his people, Israel. And he will be there in Jerusalem amongst his people. He will be there personally. We will hopefully be there. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. Let's turn to Jeremiah 31. At that time, God's law and the Holy Spirit will be made available and God's law will be written in the minds and hearts of the people. Jeremiah 31. That promise is found elsewhere as well. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant, verse 32, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. The loving creator God who brought them out of Egypt, who showed them his power, who showed Egypt his power, who fed them in the wilderness, but they broke the covenant. And doesn't modern Israel do the same? You know, our, the founding fathers, they weren't converted Christians. We understand that. But they had this notion that God was behind the blessings that uh, America uh, had received. But did America really ever turn to God? Did America really ever look at the Bible and say, well, you know, the Sabbath is Saturday? A few did. A few did. But we're stubborn people. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there personally. He wants to be the God, the personal God, the only God of his people, Israel. Israel's hard-headed. We see that today. We thumb our nose at God as a nation. You know that. Britain does the same. Australia does the same. So we will be punished as a nation. Hopefully, we in God's church can learn our lessons ahead of time and and we'll be able to escape that punishment. But the days are coming, brethren, when God will put his law in the hearts and minds of his people. 
The Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to that time, brethren. It looks forward to a time when people won't stray to and fro throughout society and think that abortion is good and homosexuality is good and Islam is good and Catholicism is good and drugs are good and lying is good and murder is good. Sorcery is good and wickedness is good and Harry Potter and Fifty Shades of Grey and all this garbage is good. There's a time coming when God's law will be in the hearts and minds of his people. Prosperity will then be upon the tribes of Israel. The second promise, prosperity will flow out from righteous judgment. Judgment and governance are in many ways synonymous. Again, government is just the structure. Governance is just the application of the of the laws. <clears throat> and so there will be prosperity that will flow from righteous government. Psalm 122, verse 5 alludes to that. Let's not turn there for sake of time. But we will, brethren, in the millennium, benefit from a perfect government and perfect governance. Let's turn to Revelation 19, verse 15. We all understand that <clears throat> the Father is head of all. And we all understand that Jesus Christ will be King of Kings, ruling over all under the Father in the millennium. Revelation 19, verse 15. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles portrays, brethren. So when we go to our various locations, whether it's Pennsylvania or Texas or Israel or somewhere in Europe or South America, or maybe you're going far away to New Zealand or something, it's not a vacation. It's to participate in, to look forward to one of the greatest promises that has ever been made. Yahweh Shema, that God will be there, that his government will rule, that there will be no more destruction and death and horror. There will be blessings and that Christ will be king of kings in a real way. Revelation 19, verse 15. We see Christ coming on his white horse. Verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he strikes the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the, fine the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ will be the King of Kings at the top of that government. And his righteous law will flow from him through us to all the world. David will be king and prince over the tribes of Israel. David will be resurrected. Let's turn back to Ezekiel 37. We referenced that earlier. Psalms alludes to that as well. But Ezekiel 37, brethren, this will come to pass. Why do we keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Because we know, we believe that Jesus Christ will return he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And we know and we believe that David will be resurrected, a man after God's own heart. And he will be prince over the tribes of Israel. Won't that be incredible? Brethren, there's a crown and a throne being prepared for you in the household 
of David in the government of God? That's what Psalm says. Ezekiel 37, verse 25. Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. You know, again, Dr. Meredith often mentions study the statutes. That reveals God's way of governance. It's the statutes show us how to take care of things, you know, the animals and the house and property and how to deal with conflict and disputes. And here we see that the statutes will be applied in the kingdom of God. Verse 25, then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Verse 26 talks about making a covenant of peace with them, which I alluded to earlier. In a Tomorrow's World article a few years ago, uh, titled The Hidden Message of Jesus Christ, Dr. Meredith wrote the following. Again, brethren, this is real. When we go to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles... It's not just to enjoy a nice dinner and fellowship. Those things are good. God wants us to have a nice dinner. He does. Go go read it. We're told to go have a good steak. That's not the main reason we're there. Dr. Meredith wrote, Within a comparatively few years, David will once again be king under Christ over all Israel during the coming millennium. Your Bible reveals that a literal government will be set up on this earth with Jesus Christ ruling from Jerusalem as king over many lesser kings. The Bible reveals that the people of Judah and of the so-called lost ten tribes will be reunited under King David's leadership. And we already read one of those prophecies in Ezekiel about Israel being regathered. Under David will be the twelve apostles. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We've seen that Christ will be king of kings. We've seen that the prince of Israel will be David. We know the twelve apostles will be there. Luke chapter 22, verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, speaking of the apostles. I'd like to interject here briefly, brethren, and we don't compare ourselves to the apostles in any way, but we continue with Christ in trials as well shouldn't be something that's a surprise or something that seems mysterious or odd if we have trials. They had trials. Other than most likely John, we believe that all of them were martyred. I'm not saying that all of us will be martyred. Hopefully if we're Philadelphian, the vast, vast majority of us will, will not need to be martyred. But they continued with Christ in his trials. Verse 29 
and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me. Brethren, there is a reason we keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a reason we keep God's holy days. They show us a real plan that God is bringing to effect. The world does not understand this. You cannot understand what God is doing on this earth unless you understand and observe and keep the holy days. The holy days reveal God's plan for us and for all of humanity. And there's a goal. There is a goal. We run a race. There is a crown. There is a throne. And when we observe the Feast of Tabernacles with zeal and thankfully and joyfully, and we don't skip out on services, I'll get to that later, and we're there before Sabbath begins for the opening night message because we are yearning for the Feast of Tabernacles and what it really pictures, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth, and we don't want to go into the tribulation. We want Christ's return and we want to be part of it. That's a goal, isn't it? That's a goal. Is there anything wrong with a goal? Christ said that their reward would be that they would receive a kingdom just as his father bestowed one upon him. Verse 29, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I believe one reason that government is attacked so much, and even in some other Church of God groups, is because, of course, Satan hates the notion. And he wants to make government look bad. And he wants to make authoritative, top-down government look wrong. What does Christ say the reward is? It's not abusive, authoritative in a wrong way. It's loving and kind and good, but authoritative when it's needed. And so the 12 apostles will rule under Christ and under David. And this is the time, brethren, when we can look forward to wonderful, wonderful blessings that will come from that government. Let's turn back to Amos. Amos chapter 9. The Feast of Tabernacles points toward the millennium. And during the millennium, there will be tremendous blessings, blessings of peace, prosperity, food, safety. Amos 9, we'll talk more about those blessings throughout the rest of the sermon. Amos 9, verse 11. <clears throat> On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins. Who can raise up that tabernacle of David? Can the Jews raise up the tabernacle of David today? Only the Lord of Lords can raise up the tabernacle of David. Only the Lord of Lords can resurrect King David. I will raise up its ruins. Speaking of the physical tabernacle, but David will be raised up as well. He'll be resurrected. I will raise up its ruins, rebuild it as the days of old. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. We'll come to this later, but God is not a respecter of persons. 
Israel's no better than the Germans or the Chinese. What does it say here, brethren? All the Gentiles who are called by my name. In the millennium, God will call all people his, who acknowledge him, who call on him, who believe and worship him. Behold, the days are coming, verse 13 says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes shall uh, overtake him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine. All the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel, those who had gone off into tribulation, those who had gone off on death marches, those who had been enslaved for three and a half years, from times much worse than what Dr. Torrance experienced. And I say that with respect. They will plant their vineyards. They will drink wine from them. There will be peace. There will be safety. Verse 15, I will plant them in their land. God's government will bring safety, security, peace. No longer shall they be pulled up. This isn't speaking only of that little tiny speck of land in the Middle East where a few Jews and some Benjamites and probably a sprinkling of Levites are. This is speaking of all tribes of Israel that are going to be pulled up in the years ahead. They'll no longer be pulled up from the land which I have given them. We read about that in Ezekiel. They will no longer be pulled up from the land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's just interesting to me, the end of Ezekiel, the end of Amos, the end of many of the prophets, end on this millennial theme. You know, 1 Peter talks about the the prophets of old who had the spirit of Christ in them. And they they yearned to understand and they talked about these things. They did, didn't they? It's a hopeful message, brethren. How privileged we are to live at this time when we understand so much more than those who had some understanding but didn't have the understanding we have before us, brethren. You you have God's Holy Spirit in you if you're truly converted. We live at a time when so much has been restored to God's church. There were times down through the ages when God's church didn't fully understand or keep the holy days, didn't fully understand the, uh, the, the truth about the millennium. And I'm, I, I know that most of the physical Israelites who were hard-headed and didn't have the Holy Spirit, they didn't understand what you understand. Isaiah chapter 19, <clears throat> we've seen that Israel will be blessed. We've seen the Gentiles will be blessed. Isaiah 19, all people will be blessed, brethren, from God's proper, perfect, righteous government. Prosperity will flow to all people. The Assyrians, the rod of God's anger. The Chinese, those great, great people, those great nations of the East. The Russians. All people will be blessed in the millennium by God if they they obey Him. They still have to obey. Isaiah 19, very famous verse. Verse 24 and 25, Isaiah 19, verse 24 and 25. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. 
brethren, we read this and we talk about it and we understand what it means, but let's pause just for just one second. Israel will be one with Egypt and Assyria. This promise will be fulfilled immediately after who took Israel into the death camps? Assyria. It's, it's almost unfathomable. Israel will be one with Egypt and Assyria. And God will bless Egypt and Israel and Assyria. He calls Egypt blessed. He calls uh, Egypt his people. He calls Assyria the work of his hands. Israel his inheritance. Point number three. Psalm 122 verse 6 indicates that there will be prosperity upon all those nations that love Jerusalem. And we've been alluding to that. That means that they acknowledge that God is God. We've already mentioned there is no partiality with God. Romans 2, verse 11 uh, makes that point. There's no partiality with God. God is working with Jews and Gentiles today. God is working with uh, physical Israel to teach physical Israel a lesson because physical Israel is hard-headed. Galatians chapter 6, let's turn there briefly. Today, in God's church, whether... From the tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Judah or whether uh, black or white, we are the Israel of God if we are called into God's church. Galatians 6 verse 15. Galatians 6 verse 15. For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision but a uh, nor uh, sorry nor uncircumcision uh, sorry in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything sorry but a new creation it's a new creation that matters and as many as walk according to this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God you are the Israel of God Hopefully in the right way, right? Hopefully not in. The, hopefully we're not the Israel of God in the hard-headed way that the physical Israelites were. Hopefully we're the Israel of God in the right way, that we have God's Holy Spirit in us, and that we serve our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we really love Him, and we really love His law, and we enjoy His holy days. <clears throat> we know, brethren, that. <clears throat> The desolate lands will be made fertile in the millennium. We know that the seas will give their abundance of wealth to the nations once again. God will bless the land and the seas. After what's going to happen during the tribulation, he will need to, won't he? We know the prophecies about the sea life being destroyed and the waters turning to blood and great hailstones and fires destroying the earth. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. The desolate lands will be made fertile in the millennium. Ezekiel 36, verse 33. 
Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So the land that has been ravaged by war, the cities that have been destroyed by war and by probably natural disasters and by the plagues, they will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be tilled, verse 34, instead of lying desolate in the sight of those who pass by. Verse 35, so they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. The desolate lands will be made plenteous again. Time of prosperity. A time when people won't have to worry about their food budget. A time when people won't have to worry about finding food. A time when the mountains will drip with oil and wine and the fatted calf will be available and the crops will grow. Prosperity flowing from God's government. The sea will give up its riches as well. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verse 5. In the millennium, which the Feast of Tabernacles looks to, Isaiah 60, verse 5. The abundance of the sea will be made available to the nations for the wealth of the nations. Brethren, a time of great, great prosperity. Isaiah 60, verse 5. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitudes of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephra, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring their gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered together to you. So forth and so forth. Dropping down to verse 9. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and the king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, referring to what is going to come in the years ahead. But in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Referring to God delivering Israel. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. No more fear. No more fear. You look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. We understand that that's heading our way. No more fear. Your gates won't need to be shut at night. But instead you will receive the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings will come in procession. 
For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. So those who reject God, those who still want to be antagonistic towards God and towards Israel, they will perish. Verses 15, 16, 17 talk about all this various material wealth. Verse 18, violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Now, we don't know if it's Ebola specifically that's going to sweep across the nations of modern Israel. But when you look at what's happening in Africa, and it's terrible, and we should pray for those people. We should pray thy kingdom come. But brethren, when we see these things in the news increasing, these scriptures are going to be more poignant than they are today. Neither wasting nor destruction. No more wasting disease. No more violence. No more destruction. But instead, prosperity. Peace. Let's turn to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 talks about abundance of food and peace for all nations, all people. Micah 4, verse uh, 3 and 4. Micah 4, verse 3 and 4. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. The tanks, the military aircraft, the military helicopters, they will be converted, they will be melted down if needed, they will be converted into useful, peaceful things. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The Russians and Ukrainians won't be fighting with each other anymore. The Japanese and the Chinese won't be on a standoff anymore. The nations will not learn or practice war Anymore, Of course, until the end of the thousand years, we know Satan will be released temporarily. <clears throat> Fourth point. Prosperity flowing out in a personal way. Prosperity flowing from God's law in a personal way. And again, brethren, these points are all intertwined. They're all intertwined. I understand that. Peace, prosperity upon Israel, the church, all the nations. Uh, These points are intertwined because the millennium will be a time of prosperity. But I want to, in the fourth point, talk about prosperity in a personal way for those who live in the millennium. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We understand, brethren, that today... Nation is rising against nation, and there are plagues and diseases and violence and so forth. But there are also, brethren, people who are personally suffering. There are people who are involved in abusive relationships. There are people who live in abusive homes. There are people who are suffering from 
psychological problems. A lot of those, a lot of those psychological problems are because of sin, not all. And there are a lot of psychological problems that are because of demons, not all. But in the millennium, there will be prosperity in a personal way. Blessings in a personal way. Hebrews 8, verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. It will be personal, brethren. People won't be as tempted. There's still human nature. But people won't be as tempted to go off and get involved in all of these terrible sins and bring all these pains upon themselves. And as the scripture says, if someone goes off in the wrong direction, a voice will be behind them and say, hey, this is the way over here. Walk this way. Or in the old King James, this is the way walk you in it. I don't know if we'll speak in the old King James in the millennium. But God's law will be written in people's hearts in a personal way. None of them will, verse 11, teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. None, no, but they won't need to say, let me talk to you about the God of the Bible, the real God of Israel. For all shall know me, verse 11, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more in that day or in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And we are participants in that new covenant, brethren. How special that is. <clears throat> and when we go to the Feast of Tabernacles and we enjoy our steak or our chicken dish or our nice uh, fish dish or whatever it is, our tiramisu or our creme brulee or our ice cream with berries on it, those good things, and we're having our conversations at dinner with our friends, maybe friends we haven't seen for a few years, and we're talking about the millennium, and we're saying, isn't it wonderful to be here? You know, here we are, where God has placed his name at the Feast of Tabernacles. And here we are, enjoying our second tithe that we've been commanded to save. And we're using that to enjoy these physical blessings. And this is nothing compared to what is coming. This is nothing compared to the blessings we'll enjoy in a few years. And here we are enjoying the spiritual food. And here we are enjoying the spiritual conversation. And here we are enjoying the spiritual peace. Because we're not practicing sin. We're living by God's law. We're waking up in the morning. We're praying every morning. We're thanking God for allowing us to be there. And we're asking him to bless the services and bless our days and bless the others who are there. And so we're in a good, positive attitude. And we're having good conversations. And we feel good because God is there among us. And that will be almost nothing compared to what will cover the earth in the millennium. When all of humanity will feel that way. When God's law will be written in the hearts of Israel and be made available to all. We know there will be some who will reject it at the beginning of the millennium and so forth. We understand that. 
But brethren, times of prosperity. Nothing like today. Nothing like today. Nothing that the world offers today comes close. And when we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, it's a foreshadowing. It's a participation in a promise without which the world would cease. Our nations would cease. Our people would cease. It's a participation in a promise that is beyond what I think we can really fully understand. I can't understand what it means to be in the God family. I I don't fully understand that. Why, you understand it academically. To have no pain. To know everything. To be able to be anywhere instantly. To be able to talk to God. To be able to talk to Moses, to Abraham. To be able to help people. To teach God's law. To know God's law perfectly. Not be tempted by sin. Not be tempted by by anything at all to be perfect. To teach God's law. A time of peace. A time of personal prosperity. Including for those who are human, who live during the millennium, live during that time. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is another familiar scripture. Psalm 119, verse 165. Tells us we don't even have to turn there. Great peace have those who love God's law. When God's law is written in the hearts and minds of his people during the millennium, then those people will have great peace. Sorry, but the pharmaceutical companies who make all these drugs to deaden your senses and keep you from being depressed, they're going to be out of business. Won't be needed. Great peace have those who love God's law. Let's turn to Psalm 119. There's, in verse uh, 173, there's something maybe that's relevant here. Psalm 119, let's turn to verse 173. Psalm 119, 165 talks about uh, the peace that those have who love God's law. Uh, Verse 173 Here we are, Psalm 119, <clears throat> Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. Let your judgments help me. This is personal, brethren. Sometimes we think about the millennium, and it's right, but we think about the millennium maybe a little too much in a global way. But it's also personal. Those who live into the millennium, God will be their God personally. God's law will be written in their hearts personally. Let my soul live. It will praise you. Let your judgments help me. God's law, God's precepts, God's statutes are there to help. To give you an abundant life. You know, certain prosperity preachers talk about an abundant life. God's law gives you an abundant life. God's law gives you an abundant life. So we look forward to the Feast of Tabernacles, brethren, because it pictures 
a time of great prosperity, prosperity flowing from God's perfect government, prosperity flowing from perfect governance, which we hopefully are part of, will be part of. Let's turn to Leviticus 23. So we will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in a little more than a week. Leviticus 23, some of you will be departing in a few days or, you know, seven, eight, nine days from from uh, from today. Hopefully no one's departing on the, the Sabbath, but seven days from tomorrow. And we'll be observing the Feast of Tabernacles, which is outlined here in Leviticus 23. I'm sure you've been studying uh, this chapter recently. The Feast of the Lord. And here we find in verse 33 that God provided ancient Israel with instructions about how to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice the first day is a holy convocation, and it begins at sunset. And as the last psalm of ascent makes it clear, and probably you mostly all know this, but where are you, physically speaking, when the last psalm of ascent is sung? Where are you? You can look that up later. But where are you? You're not driving to the feast. You're not at your hotel. You're in the house of the Lord. During the opening night, evening services. That's a holy night, holy day. Leviticus 23, verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. For seven days to the Lord. We are to serve the Lord. Take joy in the Lord. Learn about the Lord. Pray and yearn for Him to come to establish what the Feast of Tabernacles pictures and enjoy a small foretaste of the millennium. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. What's that? Well, that's the eighth day or the last great day or the eighth day of the feast. It's a separate feast. It's the seventh holy day in God's annual holy day plan. So the eighth day is a holy convocation as well. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. The eighth day is a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. Verse 37. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. A burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, everything on its day. And we are to enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles. And we are to enjoy the good things of the land. And we are to be at services every single day on the Feast of Tabernacles because that's why we're there, to fellowship with God, to fellowship with one another. Yes, to enjoy ourselves and to have nice dinners and walks on the beach and walks in the mountains and coffee in the morning and enjoy, you know, instead of just buying Folgers, you can afford to buy, you know, some some whole bean coffee maybe that's fresh and you can grind it up. Isn't that nice? We don't have to just drink the cheap coffee at the feast. We can afford a little more. Yes, we are there to enjoy those things as well. But first and foremost, we're there to fellowship with God, to fellowship with each other. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 
It's very interesting, brethren, how excited um, Israel was in this account. Let's notice and let's take a lesson away from this. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we will begin in verse 17. Let's begin at verse 16. We've got a few minutes remaining. Nehemiah 8, verse 16. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or on the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of of Ephraim. So they stay in booths. We stay in temporary dwellings today to commemorate Israel staying in temporary dwellings after God brought them out of Egypt. They were sojourners, and so we stay in temporary dwellings. And so the whole congregation of those who had returned from their captivity, the whole congregation of those who had returned from their captivity, you know, the millennium, brethren, will be a time again that will follow captivity, won't it? Now, you, 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 you see the parallel. There's a coming captivity for Israel. There's a coming Feast of Tabernacles, a coming millennium for Israel. And so this was a prior captivity and a prior Feast of Tabernacles. And Israel was so joyful to come out of captivity. And so the people made their booths. And then in verse 17, the congregation that had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was great gladness, great gladness. Of course, that gladness. Now, they came out of real captivity, so I'm not belittling that gladness they experienced. But that gladness will not be as great as the gladness that's going to be seen in a coming few years, possibly, when Israel comes out of a greater captivity. And brethren, when we can be there, we can be there On our thrones, we can be there as God beings under Christ and we can help those people come out of captivity and we can help teach them and calm them and soothe them. And notice what Israel did day by day from the first day until the last. This is speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles. He read from the book of the law of God. Daily Sabbath, not daily Sabbath services, but daily services. They read from God's law, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. They had great joy. They experienced a little bit of prosperity, and they celebrated the feast. And they didn't forsake assembling themselves all seven days of the feast. Because they appreciated it. And some of them, not most, not very many, some of them, they had a glimpse and understood that it pictured something greater. Brethren, you understand what it pictures. We understand what it pictures. A real government where Christ will establish his law and his rulership on the earth. When we can be rulers under him, spirit beings, God beings, and we can rule and serve and teach for 1,000 years 
And then, for the rest of eternity, the millennium is the beginning of the rest of God's plan. The kingdom of God will continue forever. There's no end. We don't know what God has in store, but we know it will be good. We know that God's law will be sustained forever and ever. And we know that we can be part of the God family. When we go to the Feast of Tabernacles, we don't go for a vacation. We go to celebrate a great promise. A great promise. We go, brethren, because we're in training to sit on those thrones of judgment. Let's turn in conclusion to Psalm 122, where we began. The third psalm of ascent. The psalm that we would read today. If we followed that tradition, it's just a tradition. It's not uh, something you have to do. And again, the scholars aren't sure if they read the psalms on the 15 days prior or the 15 steps the day of or both. I, I think it was both. Psalm 122, verse 5. Brethren, this is real. This psalm is real. You know, as another digression, people, some people say there's not much prophecy in the Bible. You have these Protestant preachers. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy. And this is a prophecy about what you're doing today. Literally today. What you're learning. What I'm learning. What we hope for. What we strive for. Prosperity. Coming from God's government. In the millennium. Psalm 122 verse 5. We keep the Feast of Tabernacles because to us this is real. For thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Those who acknowledge that God is God. Peace be within your walls. No more Violence, no more fear. Prosperity within your palaces. No more bankruptcy. No more calamity. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I wish you a joyous and joyful upcoming Feast of Tabernacles.